Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. Let's get right to it. It's David Summers and another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the world, the podcasting world, with the super studcast. Let's step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey Ron, what's up man? How are you? I'm good, Dave. I'm really good, man. And kind of enjoying being back up here in Tennessee. And uh, things are good here. Uh, weather's nice, beautiful. Uh, I forgot how pretty it was up here, uh, <laughs> to be honest with you. And it's uh, really great to be back here and and being able to enjoy it. Got a little different kind of weather, man, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a little snow above me and a little mountaintop above me just about four days ago. So. As it always was back here in the state of Tennessee, especially this, living on the eastern side around the Smoky Mountains, yeah. you never know what you're going to get. So you get a little snow in April. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Hey, has anybody has anybody gone? Hey, you're the Tennessee stud. Have you? I mean, anybody recognize you? Well, not so much as it used to be because I've been gone for 20 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I have a feeling I, I look a little bit older. To me, I'm just as handsome as I ever was. Oh, but, of course uh, you are. You know, of but, uh, you know, yeah. I guess uh, some people, uh, you know, don't really remember my face that well. And I guess my face is probably, to be honest with you, changed a little bit, too. Good Lord, so, it's so uh, hard for you to be humble in it. Isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I'm doing the best I can here, Dave. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's about all I can do is the best I can. All I right, kind of sound see. like Rob. <laughs> Reminded me of my brother, you know. I got to tell you something. You knocked it out of the park last week. And I, I, I also want to say that I had a ton of fun on Super Studcast number 40, parts one and two. But last week on number 196, you got this thing up to a fever pitch. And listen, I, I don't know about you, but I am ready to get on the trail. Yeah, well, you know, I, I know you was a little bit upset, as uh, as probably a lot of other people were, with the fact that I couldn't get it, squeeze it all into one. Uh-huh. But I'll be honest with you, man, I'm hoping to be able to squeeze it all into two, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're, about to, we're about to jump on this ride today, you know, and uh, we're going to continue uh, the ride from last week, obviously. And uh, we're going to talk about, obviously, the things that I've been saying April 27th, but in this episode, we're going to find out that I'm a day off, man. You know, so so, uh, we'll get to that as we go through here. 
But the actual date of this show was April 28, 1977. Oh. And obviously, it was one of the most fascinating nights of my life. We spent the last studcast building for a record-breaking night, man, in so many ways. We talked about the Parade of Champions card that was already set. We talked about the four-title match TV that was never done before nor since after that for Southeastern in preparation for this big championship night. Uh, we talked about preparing the building. We, you know, the fans certainly filled this building to overflow and the, and the results we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. The wrestlers were all there, man. And uh, today we're going to get the results of how all that stuff worked out for us. I really had no idea exactly what to expect from any of it, man. I only knew that I'd done my best job, the best I could. <laughs> to piece it all together. And I knew that the good Lord had blessed my efforts and, and the other people in my company for two and a half years. And on this night that we're going to finish with today, we're going to set all time records. So this event, pretty much everything I dreamed about when I bought this one small city in Tennessee, Knoxville, and for what many believe was an astronomical amount of money. And for that reason, basically, Dave, I kind of became a laughing stock of wrestlers and promoters and owners around the world wow. when they heard what I paid for Knoxville. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but it didn't stop me or my hopes of turning that one city in Knoxville into a territory someday. And uh, this is going to be the night that culminates basically all my dreams, man. They're all going to come true. Wow. That's amazing. All right. We can't wait to hit the trail. I, I know, I know this for sure that last week's studcast or so I've learned, Ron, was the largest ever in number of listeners. Congratulations for that. I know fans have been raving about how good it was. I know I, like most studcast fans, wanted to continue on last week, obviously, and to hear the rest of the story, of course. But when you started naming off the things yet to be told, I kind of prepared myself for something special this week also, as we heard last week. So, well, when are you going to give us that, stud? Well, man, I, I'm going to do my best, Dave, to start right into it. I got my horse all saddled up here, and, uh, and I'm pretty sure that you have too. And, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I think, Dave, uh, you know, maybe this this one may be better than even part one. This part two may be even better than part one. And I, I want to <laughs> thank all the fans out there before we get started today about the heartwarming comments, man, I got about last week's studcast. You know, wrestling history was truly made that night, and uh, and it's going to culminate in this particular studcast here. And this night uh, was proof, uh, the one we're talking about today, of how a 26-year-old wrestler in 1974, <laughs> uh, who decided uh, he wanted to do something special and be just more than a wrestler, opened up my, his first wrestling company, and on this night, he's going to make history happen. Oh, no doubt. And at some point I want to, uh, I want to see if you can address, and we, I know we don't have time on this show, but how it compares that you were 26 years old and your status in the wrestling business versus anybody else that was out there doing something similar, because I think you were way ahead of your time. All right. So anyway, I can't wait. So my horse and I, Mr. Pickles is my horse again. So we, we, we're ready to roll. So where are we riding to first? Well, well, uh, 
I believe I've you, you like you said, uh, Mr. Pickles has been been ridden before on this show. I believe Mr. Pickles know? to me was one of the faster horses that I've used over the last Waffle House was pretty close, but Mr. Pickles I think is a little stronger. Yeah, well, I tell you, you know, uh, and it's pretty pretty uh, prophetic, you know, that he comes on in the part two, you know, so he's here for the second ride, <laughs> right? And it's in a part two, you know, and uh, and he sounds awful sour. But uh, but I'm hoping we can sweeten him up a little bit during this episode, man. And uh, yeah. So uh, let's begin this thing, man. Let's I'm begin this bacon ride. And uh, you know, it starts, you know, with a, a question I received from several people this past week, oddly enough. And then they ask about how the crew felt about my wrestling Harley for the world championship. You know, and uh, pretty mm. good question because uh, you know I'm the owner of the company, and and, and it's uh. You know, it's questionable about, uh, uh, thank goodness I'm a little better worker probably than, uh, than poor old George Goulas, you know, who probably got a couple of NWA title shots himself because his daddy was the owner. Obviously, uh, being owner of the company, uh, I don't know exactly uh, what they're thinking. You know, uh, guys in the crew, they don't come and talk to you. They, they're friends with you. Uh, they're, they're honest with you. But, uh, you know, they probably don't say everything they're thinking because they worry about, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't want to hurt my position here. So, you know, obviously, being owner of the company, I don't really know what a lot of the people working for me, a lot of the wrestlers were thinking. But I'm sure they all considered who who made uh, the most sense to take the shot with Harley at that point. And we've discussed a lot of those reasons for it being me in the previous programs. So ultimately, you know, what it breaks down to, Dave, is so far as most wrestlers are concerned, the most important thing each night on any card is the payoff. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give a damn who's on top of the card. <laughs> you know, they just want to know how much money I'm making tonight, you know? Right, right. So, you know, and I, and I, what did happen after this uh, this match with Harley Race is I, I got a lot of compliments when I got back in the dressing room. Uh, that's always a nice thing. And, uh, and what really impressed me was the number of guys that stayed there through the entire match to the very end to watch it, you know? Uh, so that meant that, uh, you know, by staying there and watching it, they were into it. So that in itself, the fact that they stayed and watched the whole match, it, I considered that to be a great compliment. And I oh, took, real? It, yeah. Yeah, I took it kind of as confirmation that the, the boys, the wrestlers were all right with this decision. Yeah. So let's ride on into the night of April 28, 1977. Now, I'm going to get here to the point of where I've, I'm off a little bit, uh, you know, in my dates. And I know a lot of the people out there, they really listen close to this program and they really enjoy it. And, and I certainly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, someone contacted me and let me know. My dates are off by one day, and it started, uh, obviously, with February 28, 1977, which I mistakenly calculated as being a leap year. And uh, obviously, that's going to make me one day off from the February 27th to 77. So uh, obviously, 1977 was not a leap year, you know. And as a result of my mistake, Dave, every date of matches announced after that February 28, 1977, I was a day a day behind. You know, instead of it being the 27th, this show was actually on April 28th. 
So now that we straighten all that out, Dave, let's dig into these this event's re- results, man. And uh, that's what we're really here for today. That's what we set people up for. And uh, I'm pretty proud of what the what the heck this is going to all be about before this one is over. So uh, let's start it all out with the size of the crowd. I'm not surprised you were a day off with your with your dates, Ron. I mean, you you are a little bit older as a wrestler, but as much as you guys were dropped on your head, I, I'm not surprised you. <laughs> you were only off by one day. <laughs> as many times as I've been dropped on my head, I'm surprised I'm in the right month, man. Yeah, how many you fingers am I holding up right now? <laughs> Never mind. Oh <laughs> hey, boy, yeah. man. Uh, you know, obviously that's good, man. That's good, Dave. You know, I have been dropped on my head quite a few times, and uh, you know, I'm lucky that I'm just a day off. So, you know, yeah. I've caught back up, and I promise from here on, folks, I'm going to have you the right date. So, uh, so I'd hate to, you know, hardly enough days. Your horse, Mister Pickles, you know, uh-huh. he's pretty much in step today, man. Contrary to his lame name that he has, you know, but. But I, I'd hate to have to put the fuller leg lock on you for saying something like that to me, you know, yeah, being dropped on my head a little bit. So you'd be falling way behind if I was to put that hold on you. I bet people love the name Mr. Pickles. I, I, I'm almost guaranteeing it. Okay. And I'd love, I, I'd actually hate for you to have to put the fuller leg lock on me too. So let's, let's kind of stay away from that. If you don't mind, you could probably break a horse's leg with that hole. Mr. Pickles and I are going to stay over here. So exactly how big was the crowd? April 28th, 77. We got the date in the Knoxville Coliseum. What'd you do? Well, oddly enough, Dave, uh, that is still a great question to this very day. There was a crowd inside the building, obviously, that uh, that had bought seats to sit in. Uh, there was a secondary crowd inside the building uh, when all the seats were sold out. And they began to sell standing room only tickets at general admission prices. And then there were hundreds of people outside in the lobby. It was a huge lobby there where you bought your tickets that was completely sold out. And uh, at some point, they stopped selling tickets. And it was just about match time or a little bit after match time. It might have even been before match time because there was some advanced sales there. There were thousands more besides those hundreds that were filling up that lobby trying to buy tickets when they couldn't get them. There were thousands more outside the the Coliseum lobby. There was a big patio. It was called the, the back patio. And uh, there was an estimate of thousands of people out there that couldn't even get inside the lobby to try to mm-hmm. buy tickets. So the patio crowd, they they got a little riled up. Uh, you know, they couldn't get in and they were upset. And uh, the police had to come to disperse the crowd about 30 minutes after the matches started. They had to come down and, and send people home and basically say, I'm sorry, there's no more seats in there, wow. you know. And uh, that never happened very often in that building. It had never happened for a sports event. I can wow. tell you that. Yeah. So if that wasn't enough of a mess that night for them, traffic was blocked for miles around the Coliseum. And the fans were still trying to find parking places, and they weren't. When they found the parking place, they didn't. They weren't going to have any chance of getting inside the building. So you know, we created a little mess there, man. <laughs> that was a, that was mom and dad's worst nightmare because you know, they wanted to be there, the kids wanted to be there too. But that sounds like pandemonium outside the building before it even started inside the building. All right, so again, how many folks were there? 
<laughs> okay, so you're going to stay on this, man. You're going to press me, agent. So <laughs> right. let's, let's break it down, Dave, uh, you know, because I kind of anticipated, you know, somebody's going to want to know the actual number here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as close as the Coliseum and I, uh, the manager of the Coliseum, uh, which uh, was a guy named Fred McCallum, I went the very next day to see him. I had that question. Exactly how many tickets did we sell? Exactly how big was this crowd? So the ticket manifest, and that basically is just a photographic chart that shows every seat in a building. And uh, every building has it. Uh, and this showed that there were, for this event, 6,080 seats in wow. that building, okay? Now, remember the Terry Funk match that we had just six days ago before this match mm-hmm. where we put 5,600 in the building, right. okay? So right. we knew that there was more than 5,600. Because for this match, we added 480 more ringside seats. So that's how we brought that 5,600 number up there to over 6,000, wow. to about 6,080. So there was a small number of standing room only tickets sold at it. And, you know, this is the manager of the building, and he, he's, he's, he's on top of his game. And he knew, you know, he, he, he knew that 300 uh, uh, standing room only tickets were sold. Those wouldn't have been sold if a fire marshal had been there, but it was a Thursday night. And I'm sure the fire marshal's thinking, wrestling on a Thursday night, I ain't going down there. You know, they'll they'll be half full. (laughs) We were way beyond that half full mark. So if you add that 300 that was in the building uh, to the 6,080 seats who were there, uh, me and the building manager pretty much agreed that there were at least 6,380 people in that building. So I asked the manager of the building how many he estimated were out there on the patio and in the lobby after the tickets sold out, after the building was totally sold out. And he told me he estimated that there were probably 3,000 people uh, on the back patio. And uh, and so if you add that 3,000 people to the 6,080, the, the 6380 that were actually in the building, you got about 9,000 people that showed up for this match. In the city, of population in Knoxville at this time was about 125,000. That's 8% of the entire population of the city is down at the Coliseum to see a wrestling match. <laughs> That's pretty incredible, Ron. All right, so you had created a company that was extremely successful in only two and a half years. If somebody had told you before that night that you were going to set the all-time biggest record for a sports event in the Coliseum after just two and a half years, I mean, would you have believed that? <laughs> I'd have called them crazy, man. I would have said, you know, uh, hell, I would have probably said I- I'd be ecstatic with half that many people, man. <laughs> you know I mean? I just want to see that thing half full. So, you know, it was really, we really, really, uh, we shocked everybody, including me. But if anybody was laughing at about how much you paid for the company, they probably were not laughing anymore. Oh, no. I I got no more of that. (laughs) Uh, I don't believe I ever heard anybody say that ever again. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I can believe that. All right. I heard the newspaper said that the attendance was around 5,500. Why do you think that there's a discrepancy between the Coliseum manager's number and what the newspaper had to say? Well, that's a darn good question, Dave. I mean, you know, that's a, you know, what right, is the deal? I am okay? here. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the newspaper is supposed to be pretty accurate, you know? Right. So I'm going to tell you what my answer is to that. And uh, so prior to this night that uh, we set the all-time record, the largest sporting event in the history of that building was a hockey game. Now, this is before or after. The Supposedly, back in the 60s, the late 60s, they had a hockey team there. And uh, the Russian Olympic team played the local minor league hockey team uh, back in the 60s. And that was supposed to have been the record crowd for a sporting event in that mm. building. Mm. So, you know, my having been in hockey as well as wrestling, I know that there's no way a hockey game where you can uh, – you've got permanent seats in this building all up in the upper level. And in a hockey game, you can't put people on the floor because the floor is covered with ice. That's where they played the game, right? Mm, so right. Uh, for our wrestling match, the floor has 2,000 people on it. There's 2,000 ringside seats down there. So there's no way that a hockey game was going to outdraw the, the number of people that we had in the building. So, you know, and, and it all, all really goes back to newspapers. So, you know, newspapers didn't really consider wrestling to be a bona fide sport, and they didn't want to push the fact that wrestling was big time. And, you know, and I think the newspaper preferred to have that hockey record remain as the all-time record rather than wrestling. Wow. (laughs) Okay. And and that's understandable. I I can dig that, you know. I mean, I, I... you know, and wrestling really, you know, we rarely even got a small story on the third to fourth page of the sports section. <laughs> right. You know? yeah. Much less the credit that, uh, you know, we were at this time the largest drawing sports event in that part of the country, including the University of Tennessee football. I've heard you say that before. That's unbelievable considering Neyland Stadium. I mean, that's just, that's incredible. Yeah, you got 100,000-plus seats there, and we were outdrawing the football, the Tennessee football. So so it did, you know, this big night, though, did, however, do one thing. It helped us with our future in the newspaper because they were just, they they had to be shaking their heads, man, on a Friday morning after that and going, my God, (laughs) what happened over there at the Coliseum, man? Wrestling has gone crazy, you know? So basically this huge crowd, you know, although there was some contention about who's the biggest, I don't think there's any question. I mean, if you have a hockey game and you've got a certain number of permanent seats and uh, you've got wrestling that has 2,000 more seats available than what you have up top, there's no way you're not you're going to have a bigger crowd than wrestling did. So that crowd, in essence, really produced a, a lot more respect for wrestling than anything that had ever been there before. That's pretty cool, Ron. It sounds like you had to earn respect in wrestling, even with, uh, especially with the newspaper. All right. So, so where are we going to ride to next? Well, let's talk briefly about the entire territory's attendance that week. Let's, let's, let's really cover this uh, really well. So the Monday before the big event, which is on Thursday night, uh, we wrestled in Corbin, Kentucky. We had about 2,700 people. On Tuesday in Johnson City, we more than filled the building as we did every week at this point. They could never get all the people in there that wanted to come. Uh, they had 3,000. Wednesday, we wrestled in a really tiny little area, so small that it didn't have a major city. It was called Whitley County, Kentucky. They had a big gym, because, as most high schools have in the state of Kentucky, because basketball is so popular. 
We drew 2,900 people in no city. You couldn't find the town. All you could find was the school. So, you know, I mean, uh, we were on fire, literally. Thursday, obviously, uh, we drew 6,380 people in Knoxville. Uh, Friday, we took them up to Hazard, and uh, we had some extra guys in the crew that came in to work on TV that wanted to work. Uh, and we did 4,100 people on Friday night in Hazard, and we did 3,100 Saturday night in Harlan, Kentucky. So we just pretty much filled every place we went to during the week. So the total for the week in the territory was over 22,000 fans. I don't think we ever broke that record, but I know that we were around it and in the 20s and 21s. And that almost uh, amazingly enough, uh, Dave, almost $100,000 total gross for the week. That's pretty phenomenal. And the record you're talking about is that over 22,000 fans. Yes. Over 22,000 fans in one week. In one week. Yeah. That's the thing in one week's time. All right. So that's a million. That's over a million. If you average that for a year, that's over a million fans a year. Wow. All right. So what was the gross gate for like for Knoxville alone? That, that had to be pretty huge. Oh, wow. I mean, you know, the accountant always brought me the numbers for all these events. And when he came down and showed me this number, I would I almost fell in the floor. It, it, the gross house for Knoxville, Tennessee was $42,000 that night. The entire cost of Knoxville for me was $150,000. This one event grossed 35% of the entire cost of my company. In today's money, that $42,000 would equate to $183,000. <laughs> I know for certain nobody ever joked again about how you overpaid for Knoxville. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. if, you, if you told guys those figures, you know, I mean, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but there would have been a bunch of people jumping up to want to buy it, man, at that yeah, point. No doubt. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I never heard anything about that again, man. I never heard any, anybody even dream about saying something like that. So word got around very fast about what was going on in Southeastern wrestling. And, and there was a really good reason for that, man. You know, uh, and there's an old saying in the wrestling business that's perfect. And it, and it came from an event like this. You, my granddad used to say, uh, you want to get the word out, Ron? He goes, uh, you telephone, you telegra- telegraph, or you telewrestle. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, so okay. all these wrestlers that's on this card, and some of them aren't from the territory. Some of them from Jerry Jarrett's side of the state. Right. They're just on the, they are just letting out the news, man. Wow. What's going on over there, man? Word spread like wildfire, man. Literally. Within the next two weeks, I started getting calls from big names that I just couldn't believe were trying to get in. You mean like individual wrestlers? Individual wrestlers, man. Heard about this. The word got around. It was the telephone telegraph or telewrestler. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. and uh, wrestlers <laughs> tell other wrestlers. And wow, yeah. best publicity you could have is guys uh, talking about how big your crowds were. Oh, no doubt. And, and then obviously the the kind of payoff your guys were getting. So All right, so look, I think this is a good place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to discuss that tremendous card, the results of the matches and the payoffs to each wrestler. That's going to be interesting. And I think you're going to be in the ring with the king and maybe a private moment 
after the match. I think that's really cool, and that's going to be coming up. We'll do that when we come back, when this stud cast continues in a moment right here. Every fan needs some great old-school wrestling on DVDs to recall for yourself what it was all about. Preserve history. Show your children, grandchildren, friends, or neighbors what real wrestling looked like. No better example exists than the classic Southeastern and Continental Territories produced in the 1980s. Twelve tremendous hours on five DVDs. Get them now at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store and find stars they made famous, like Sterling Golden. He became Hulk Hogan. Punk Rock Ferris became the Honky Talk Man. Jerry Stubbs became Mr. Olympia. Lord Humongous was created. The famous Armstrong family, Fullers, Riches, Sheep Herders, Arn Anderson, Paul Orndorff, Austin Idol, Kevin Sullivan, Dutch Mantel, Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, Mr. Wrestling 2, Joe LaDuke, Jacques Rougeau, Dr. Tom Pritchard, Dirty White Boy. The list is endless. 67 matches in all, only $39.99, and that includes shipping. Get it now. Now at TNStud.com, click Stud Store, and own your precious piece of wrestling history. Welcome back. Another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller hates David Summers. Thanks a lot for being here with us. These Studcaster, they're so much fun, and you can find every one of them, every Studcast, and every Super Studcast at TNStud.com. It's the history of wrestling. It's laid out right there for you at TNStud.com. Dot com. Check it out. All right, Ron, still waiting on that surprise. Remember, remember you promised last stud cast. Is that coming soon? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're you're, you're kind of like a little kid sometime, Dave. On man. Christmas you, morning. Thank you. You, you yes. want to eat the candy right away, man. You know, so, so you all know me well enough now to, to not expect <laughs> it. Uh, you're going to get this really early in the stud cast. Uh, yeah. We're going to get to it, though. I can tell you that we are. Yeah. We do. We, we do have a great surprise. I think for fans uh, that have been listening every week are going to be. Uh, they're going to be pleased. All right. Cool. Where we so so where we uh, where we riding to next? Before we talk about the other matches, man, let's let's discuss this crowd and what it looked like. I kind of want to set this up and let fans kind of get a feel for the atmosphere of of an event like this. Uh, You know, the bill to start the event had to be held up to begin with because uh, my accountant comes down and he says, Ron, it's mayhem. (laughs) It's crazy up there. I mean, we've already sold almost all the tickets, but uh, but, you know do you want to start on time? And, you know, and I got to be famous even in the hockey business for this and they hated it. You know, uh, hockey people said, man, you got to start your game right on time. And my very first hockey game in Nashville, Tennessee, when I owned the team had 6,000 people, they'd never, ever, nobody had ever drawn 3000 in that league. (laughs) And I got 6,000 and I held up the game for 40 minutes. (laughs) Boy, wow. did I hear I hear about this. Well, so this one, I tell him, yes, let's hold it up. We'll hold it up for about 10 minutes, okay? It was really important to hold it up. There was a reason for it because the guy in the opening match had just been there one week, and he it was spectacular. Tony Charles was in that first match. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I didn't want any fan that bought a ticket to miss seeing this guy. So uh, I went myself back to the big curtain in the back of the Coliseum uh, just to take a look at what the building was like, you know, I mean, how full is it? And and I pulled the little curtain back and I peeked out of there, you know, so nobody could really see me looking. 
And that curtain was like 70 feet tall, you know, so that's a monster curtain. And I pulled it back far enough that I could see the building, and I was shocked. It was, I was like, the building was already packed, and the fans I could see up toward the front where they entered were still just pouring in. I mean, and it was the kind of crowd, man, that, that gave you chill bumps on the way to the ring, you know, me anyway. I, uh, and I was still standing behind that giant curtain at the back of the building when that bell finally rang. I'm standing there probably just looking at the crowd for 10 minutes. And when the bell rang, Dave, uh, something that happened that I had never seen in wrestling before. The bell rang and that massive crowd popped just like <laughs> they'd seen the finish of a bat. <laughs> I mean, wow, the roof came off. Just the bell ringing to start it, man. I, yeah. And I knew right then this is going to be a special night, not just for Southeastern but for these fans out there. And I couldn't tear myself away. You know, the bell had rung. I could have gone back to the dressing room. But I wanted to stay and see that first match myself. I wanted to see what, how this is going to go for the entire night. And usually you can tell from your first match. Man, when, when you get a pop based on just simply the bell ringing, it's like, holy cow, this is going to be an incredible night. All right, so are we going to hear about the matches now? Uh, yes. You know, that, that horse of yours, uh, you know, uh, it's about to run away with you, but, uh, I, I yeah, we're going to get to the matches now. Mr. Pickles, just uh, rain him in a little bit. You know? All right. All right. So then the, the, the secret that you mentioned last week, what, what's up with that? Uh, <laughs> all in due time, Dave, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. Okay. <laughs> all right. Whatever. All right. Well, the card opens up with this great match, man. That, that And this match could have been a main event in most cities all around the country. Uh, Tony Charles is going to wrestle against Norvell Austin. Very first match. I mean, wow, you can't start a card with a better one than that. And uh, at this point, I'd never seen Tony Charles wrestle before he came to Southeastern. Uh, I'd only been uh, advised about his existence from Nelson Royal, who had spent quite a bit of time working in England. And he says, Ron, if you ever have a chance to get this guy named Tony Charles, you know, he is unbelievable. And then, you know, we were already doing some business and Tony calls me out of the clear blue. And thank goodness Nelson had, had wised me up to it. And uh, I took him, man. I said, absolutely. You can come here anytime you're ready. And he was ready to come. So, Tony Charles was not a huge guy. He wasn't like the wrestlers of today, you know. He was about 5'10". He weighed only about 200 pounds. But mm. every inch of his body was muscle, man. And his wrestling technique and his skills, they were just truly remarkable. He, it was only the second time Knoxville fans had ever seen him. He'd been there the week before. He had beaten three guys in a four-corners match. And uh, he wowed them that first night. And he knocked them out this night. I mean, what? and Norvell always had been a great bump taker. So he flew like few guys could, man, in the business. <laughs> and he had a way when he crashed to the mat of slapping everything at the same time so that he got tremendous noise. And he really got tremendous noise in this ring. It was one my father had built. It was a steel ring that uh, was probably 10 years old. But they never wore out. The ones he built never wore out. And they had tremendous sound. So, you know, you've got Tony Charles bumping a Norvell Austin. And, mm -hmm. wow, that ring is just sounding like uh, 
like uh, they're killing each other. So uh, just about the, that ring at 20 foot, it was a 20 foot ring. And that's just about as big a ring as any wrestler ever got to work in. I worked in one that was maybe 30 feet in Nassau, Bahamas one time, but I hated it, you know, and it was as hard as a concrete. And these rings were certainly not like that. So Tony treated the fans, man, that night to some tremendous English style throws, man. They, they do things so differently over there. Uh, you know, and the fans, nor I, <laughs> I watched the match. I'd never seen a bunch of them myself. I was like, wow, this guy is truly amazing, man. And everything he did popped that crowd. And Norvell, man, being a great worker he was, he sold all those bumps perfectly out onto the floor and just, oh, my back is killing me. Oh, gosh. I mean, he was just brilliant. And uh, when Tony finished him, he used one of the most unusual moves I'd ever seen. And the crowd had the same reaction I did. They absolutely exploded. They was like, wow, look at this, man. And I knew right then, Dave, and in that single moment that this guy was going to be a star in Southeastern, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. In fact, this guy, Dave, never leaves my company again. Oh, wow. He retires in, the, in my company. You know, I never let him leave. He never wanted to leave. So guys kept coming into the rest, dressing room after that, and they wanted to tell me about the matches as they occurred. You know, I didn't watch all the matches. After that one was over, I went back to the dressing room. And, and I really didn't need him to describe the matches for me. The crowd was so loud. Even though we're down in the bowels of that big old building, you could hear these pops and these roars. It was like, wow, you, know, you don't know what's happening, but by golly, somebody's tearing them up. And every match tore him up the whole night. So was it, was it unusual for the for the wrestlers to come back and tell you what was going on, or was it, what was I mean, why was that? They were excited. Everybody just because of the, was excited. the crowd was just popping left and right. Okay. Yes, and, yeah. and you know, they, you got guys in your crew, and you start out where we started out. I mean, Jimmy Golden and the guys that were there originally, and you got nobody in your building, and you're mm-hmm. trying to get someplace yeah and you just dream about the night you got something like this and those guys that had been there a long time they just came to me and go wow you just said this is too much you know and it it, it was for those guys who had spent years uh trying to make it happen this Mm -hmm. was the night of their dreams oh Uh, yeah wow they, they wanted to come to you. So, you know, they just kept coming and they would tell me they would be describing it. But when they're describing the match before, you've got pops going on that they can't. They got to scream at you. You're in the dressing room. You're not in the building. You're <laughs> below the building and you yeah. can't hear them. Yeah. So, you know, you know what's going to be like when you get there in that ring. So, yeah. uh, wow. So, you know, and then second match, you got Bob Orton Jr. and the great Dick Steinborn. I mean, wow. And they go out there, and I'm sure that's the match these guys are telling me about. I'm sure they duplicated the Tony Charles and Norvell Austin match because those two guys were great. And, you know, uh, and, and, you know, it was a wonderful thing about huge crowds uh, that uh, they could pull out of wrestlers, man, that uh, the fact that most of these guys, they yearn, they just, they give everything to get that big pop, mm-hmm. you know. And those yeah. huge crowds, they they make you want to give them that big pop. Yeah. So 
Bob Orton, he won that match in the middle of the ring, and he used his dangerous backbreaker, same one he'd been using on everybody. Mm-hmm. And after the submission, he dropped Steinborn on his head Ooh. like he'd been doing everybody else. And a couple of the boys watching the match came in the dressing room, and they go, oh, I think Steinborn's broke his neck. Oh, wow. You know, I'm like, oh, come on, guys. Are you kidding me? And they go, no, Ron, God, it was horrible. It looked like he broke his neck. So, but Steinborn was a tremendous wrestler and he was a great veteran, man. He'd been everywhere, all over the world and wrestling on top for most of his life since he was 18 years old when he started wrestling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Steinborn did, he sold it so good that (laughs) when, that he made them carry him from the ring. It wasn't supposed to happen. He was supposed to get beat by the the backbreaker, maybe dropped on his head, but he was supposed to get up and leave the ring. Instead, he laid there and he insisted to McMurray, the referee, that they carry me out. I want to be carried out of here, Mac. And so Mac goes and gets guys and, you know, they they send down the – you know, the medical team that's always there in the Coliseum. They bring a gurney in for him. Yeah. They, they, they haul him out on the gurney. I mean, you know, he does it right. And he, he knows he's a great guy. He's a part of this company. He'd been there for a long time. He enjoyed seeing this. He wanted to take it to another level and he knew there's something special coming for Orton. So that was, that. Yeah, that was the second match. So the first match they were talking, and when the second match ends, they're still talking like, "Holy cow, what happened to Steinborn?" And so, man, all right. So is that the surprise? Uh, no, 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 not not yet. No, 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 uh, not yet. Uh, it's <laughs> we all always right. say, "Man, I'm too much." So yeah, I'm like, I'm beginning to think, man, you're going to get to where you're too much. You're getting a lot like you, <laughs> Matt. So, uh, no, it's not to surprise yet, Dave. No. So then after these first two matches, then they string of title matches start five in a row. And the first one was the one that involved the swaps that we talked about in the last studcast with uh, Jerry Jarrett and my father's territory over in Memphis. And I had sent the Von Steigers to Memphis on a special Sunday night card just uh, five days before this event. And they actually lost their Southeastern tag belts that night in Memphis to the babyface team of Tommy Wildfire Rich and Bill Dundee. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the bell rings for this match, and the fans explode in this match long before the match even gets started. Uh, they explode when they see Tommy Rich and Bill Dundee come out of the dressing room wearing the Von Steiger Southeastern belts. <laughs> And the announcer picks up the fact, you know, he announces the ladies and gentlemen coming to the ring as your new Southeastern heavyweight champion. They right. beat the Von Steigers on uh, Sunday night in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, so, you know, gosh, the crowd just popped. They're already popping, man. They're, they're like, wow, look at they, these are our champions. Uh, so, you know, this, this match was outstanding, man. Every one of these matches were outstanding that night. But in the end of this match, the Von Steigers regained their belts in true championship style. Uh, They make both Rich and Dundee submit in their German crab hole. That was the beauty of these swaps that we were beginning to do. The Von Steigers never lost their belts in front of the Southeastern crowd, so they didn't get hurt by losing those belts. But they regained all of their heat that they had before because they want them back in front of a Southeastern crowd. 
a so, record crowd too. Yeah, wow. And a record crowd, a huge yeah. crowd, right? Yeah. So, so they got all their heat back and more, and they made their uh, they made their uh, both of their opponents, not one of them, but both of them submit. So it is a very impressive team, impressive win for a team, you know, that uh, was not going to be back there. Uh, you know, it didn't hurt Dundee and Rich to lose because they're not going to be there every week. They're working in Memphis, you know, so it didn't hurt them as a team to come over there and get beat. And it was great for the Southeastern team to get this incredibly strong win in front of their their fans, their hometown yeah. fans. Oh, so, no doubt, yeah. Next title match, man. Uh, man, then this thing's rocking. Now this, this, this building is just, it's, it's ignited, man. And, uh, so Bob Armstrong shows up in the next one, man, to wrestle Jerry Lawler for the Southern heavyweight title. Talk about a great match, right? I mean, this thing is just getting better as the evening goes on and Bob beats Jerry Lawler right in the middle of the ring. And he beats him for his championship for Lawler's Southern title. So, you know, there's another swap here. That uh, where, you know, uh, Lawler's come over and uh, now you've had two title changes in a row. You had the tag team win back the Southeastern Championship. You mm-hmm. have Bob Armstrong win Jerry Lawler's Southern Heavyweight Championship in the very next match. Wow. Then Bob is going to go back with that belt four days later to Memphis. And he's going to put Lawler over in Memphis. Ah, So, you know, <laughs> I mean. We're doing some things that uh, weren't being done in territories. Got uh, a lot of then very few territories were cooperating in that respect. You know, I mean, it might change talent, but they didn't change their belts very often. Yeah. Wow. So, first world title match was next. World Junior Heavyweight Champion Nelson Royal he defending against Jimmy Golden, and they had just wrestled ninety days earlier to a sixty-minute time limit draw, and Jimmy had been one of the Longest baby faces. Uh, he was having the best run as a baby face in Southeastern at that point. He'd been there for almost two years straight. And he was beginning to need a break from Southeastern. If he was going to, we were going to maintain his popularity, he was kind of on the way out. So he knew it. And uh, being the great worker that he was and the great business guy that he was, he put Nelson over really, really strong. So Nelson was soon going to be looking across the ring at one of the best junior heavyweight wrestlers in the world, Tony Charles. So, you know, we're preparing the future here. So the main event was next, and I went to the ring first, and uh, boy, I got a chill bump ovation. It was amazing, man. I mean, it was like, wow, these people are so on fire. And then Harley came into the arena through the Big black curtains that I talked about that you hid behind, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, he opened those black curtains and he stepped out in front of the people at the back of the Coliseum. And as soon as that crowd saw him, Dave, they was it was like one tremendous boo. I mean, it was like the entire crowd is like you held up sign that says a uh, cheer or whatever they do yeah, in games right. and stuff, right? Yeah. You know, they prompt. It's like somebody was prompting them. Instantly, as soon as they saw his face, they just, I mean, it was unbelievable. And what do you think he did, Dave? He stopped instantly. He didn't take a single step. He stopped instantly. And uh, when he stopped and stood there, they turned it even higher. They turned it up a notch. And now they were really booing. He's just one step out from behind the curtain. What do you think he did? 
uh, he turned the, around and went back inside the curtain. Wait, he went back? He went back. Wow. Like, like he didn't like it. Like, oh. Like, no. I'm, I, I ain't got to do this. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, like they almost got him. Uh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. So he waited there. And he waited until the crowd began to quiet. And, you know, and finally, you know, he's not coming out, you know, and they kind of uh, the booing kind of went away and he stepped out again. And the boos were even higher than the first time, <laughs> you know, and he stood there for a second and he stepped back behind the curtain again. Wow. And uh, <laughs> oh, now they were just and now they really roared. It's like, wow, what in the hell is he going to come out here or not? What's wrong right, with right, him? Right. You know? And then he played the game one more time with him. And then he finally, when he came out that third time, they popped again. But uh, he started coming to the ring. And mm -hmm. when he started coming to the ring, he had every person in that building standing on their feet and blowing wow. their brains out. Wow. Could <laughs> he they, had them. He had them. Coming down the aisle, could they reach him? Were they trying to, I mean, were they trying to touch him or shake his hand or anything like that? Well, we had great security, and it's a big old huge coliseum, and you had these tremendously wide aisles where fans couldn't get to you. Back right. in those days, though, we didn't have any barricades around the ring, you know, like they do nowadays. Uh, right. you know, fans yeah. could come right up to the ba to the ring, the side of the ring. But, you know, they didn't really want a whole lot of Harley. And then, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and I would have been, I, I would I would hate to have somebody have stepped out there and really gotten his face because, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, that would have been a, a bloody start to a match. <laughs> right well, and there. he probably had the look or attitude on his face that don't touch me, don't come near me. I'm about Oh, yeah. They, they weren't, nobody was rushing to get to him. Yeah, so, right, right. <laughs> They were really respectful of, of, of his uh, reputation. I want to ask you real quickly about his look for the night. And was there, did he ever wrestle? I mean, I, I, he had to be wearing black tights. Do you know if he ever wrestled without wearing the, the, the traditional black tights and boots? Oh yeah. He wore some funky stuff sometime, man. He had, he had a pair of tights that he used to wear when he was young that had uh, six or eight different colors, just patches like, Oh uh, wow. Okay. You know, this, this, it was a, it was unique. You know, yeah. it, was, it was it was Harley tights, but uh, in his early days, yeah, he he wore he never wore the black. But on but this night, this one, uh, on this night, he's in black though. Yeah, oh yeah, this okay. night, this okay. night he had the black tights on, man, and uh, you know, and then what this reminded me of uh, when I'm standing in the ring and I watch this routine, I watch him go back and forth by the end of the curtain and back and out front and back, and it reminded me of the Terry Funk match six well, months earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the last time the NWA yeah. champion came to Knoxville, it reminded me of that afternoon that Terry backed me across the ring at the beginning of the match, mm -hmm. you know, and what was similar about both of these world championship matches is that everyone in the building was on fire Ooh. in both of these matches before the bell ever rang. Wow. Wow. They had them before the bell ever rang. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and when you do that, you, you're going to have a classic match. And, and that's basically what we did in this, uh, this match. Uh, Harley was just a phenomenal bump taker, you know, and, and I love to slam him. And he called for lots of slams during the match, man. He, he liked me to slam him and I loved to slam him. And uh, the, the reason was that when you pick a guy up to slam him, 
a lot of guys want to put their weight down on you and they don't want to lift themselves. They don't want to get up real high, especially mm -hmm. I'm six, mm -hmm. nine. So they don't want right. to, they don't really like to be slammed period, you know? Right. But Harley didn't mind it. In fact, when I would jerk Harley up to slam him, he would hold himself up higher than, than I could even push him up. And how, you know? how tall was you were six, nine. How tall was he? He's about, he's probably six, one, maybe six, two. Yes. You no, know, and a pretty big boy too. Yeah. Probably a good solid two forty. Yeah. You know, and uh, but uh, you know, he made it so easy to slam him that uh, during the course of this match with him, I, I, I found that I could do something that I'd never done with anybody before, and it was so effective. It was beautiful. And when I would snatch him up for a slam, he would push himself way up in the air, and I could even jump with him in the air and then slam him. Oh, wow. So I was slamming him from probably 10 feet up. Good Lord. He was taking a bump from 10 feet high. And that tremendous height and that explosive sound from that steel ring, man, that was just so good, man. Uh, and, you know, lots of guys, like I said, they didn't even want me to went and didn't want me to ever slam them, much less call for it. And Harley used those slams to tell the story of this match, man. Wow. And the story of the match was that he's going to hurt his back and he's going to have a hard time making it to the end. We're going to wrestle for an hour, hour match here. We're going to do the old, what we call the Broadway, man, uh, the killer match. You know, we're going to give him 60 minutes of wrestling. And uh, I bet you in that 60 minutes, I slammed him 40 times. At Are least. you kidding? 40 times? 40 times. At wow. Least. You know, and, and in order to tell the story, that's what it was all about. I had to keep slamming him. Because right. as the match went on, uh, the each slam affected him more. Toward the end, he's got to he, he has to crawl out of the ring to get away from me, like like I'm 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 going to beat him with just slam. Oh, I bet. So then, uh, at the ten minute mark, about the ten minute mark in this one hour match, he gets me bleeding, and he he gives me for fifty minutes of the match. I mean, I just looked like a King Kong for fifty minutes. And then with 10 minutes left, he stops me and he busts me. And, uh, and then, uh, he takes over and, uh, and for the next five minutes, he just keeps on that, that head on that blood. And, uh, and, uh, many times in the next five minutes, I take bumps, man. And then he covers me. I'd already covered him probably 20 times in the match. And he begins to cover me. Uh, he probably covers me 10 times in that five minutes and I kick out of all of them. Yeah. But he's obviously kicked out of all of them, too. So fans were on their feet. By this point, we're 10 minutes left in the match. There's nobody sitting down. And the announcer announces that five minutes is remaining. And from that five-minute point, uh, he counts down every minute as it goes by. Okay, So it just adds to the intrigue of a one-hour match. That, yeah. You know, you, you've got three minutes left, two minutes left, you know. So – the last five minutes of this match was all mine. He gave me every bit of it. And, and I'd never heard a building like that. I mean, the fans were just going crazy. I slammed him. I suplexed him. I powerbombed him. And I covered him every time. And every time he'd barely kick out. We were both exhausted. I mean, you know, and uh, we talk about it later. We were both done. I mean, we'd give it all we could. So with about two minutes remaining, and you know you can hear the announcer, two minutes remaining, I shot him out on the concrete floor, 
And I went out and I gave him the ultimate bump. I slammed him on the concrete. Whoa. And uh, what a pop that was. Wow. The crowd said, this is it. He's not getting up. But I was so exhausted at this point, I fell on my face after I slammed him. <laughs> uh, so he's on his back and I'm on my face and we're laying on the concrete. And, uh, <laughs> and the building is going absolutely crazy, man. So I crawled in, in, in crawled to the ring and I tried to pull myself back up into the rink and the timekeeper's down to one minute, you know, and uh, trying to get in there and uh, get him counted out and win me the belt however I could. And he grabs me by the back of the tights and he pulls me back and then he tries to get in. I pull him back. The building was just going crazy. So we both rolled in at the same time, got to our feet. It was about 20 seconds left in the match. And we threw a punch, both of us, and we both landed the punch. And uh, I went down face first, and he went down face first, and we laid there, and they counted out the time, the bell rung. And uh, and uh, just like the match earlier in the night when uh, Steinborn got carried out, they carried both of us out. Okay, that's uh, that's pretty incredible. So what a great night for your company and, and of course, the fans of Southeastern. But uh, you, I think you accidentally forgot a match, didn't you? <laughs> I'll be darned. You know, you and Mr. Pickles are pretty good, man. You're, you've been you've been uh, pretty well on top of it. And uh, no, I, I didn't forget it, Dave. You know, I'm going to end the stud cast with it. Matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, we're going to get to that surprise, but uh, it's going to come a little bit later. I still have one story I want to tell. Okay, we we okay. finished this match. Actually, I have a couple more stories I want to tell. But, uh, you know, uh, let's start with the, the with the boys and, and how the guys got paid for this this event, this card. OK, so everyone on the card and there were three referees also, they were paid a total of twelve thousand dollars. And uh, now this is not including Harley. OK, so and I, and I didn't take a payoff. I never took a payoff when I wrestled in my own company because. That payoff got split among the other guys, and it it made guys happier. They made a little more money, and they they would love working for me. And uh, I knew I was going to have talent because because I didn't take. So I would have taken a big payoff out of this money, but I didn't take it. Okay. So the two opening matches of Tony Charles, Norvell Austin, Bob Orton Jr., and Dick Steinborn, they got six hundred dollars each, which in today's money was two thousand seven hundred dollars. Wow. Okay. For the first and second match of the night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. And then after you get past those two opening matches, you've got these string of championship matches. You had eight wrestlers and one manager that are all, I called this the middle, middle of the card group. And, uh, this was those that were in those three first championship matches. All of these nine guys got $800 each which was about $3,600 in today's money. Wow. You know, enough, Dave, that back in that time frame, you could buy a, small, a brand new small automobile. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. For that kind of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so it, it was a pretty darn good payoff. Uh, so the, wor- the first world title match uh, between Nelson Royal and, uh, and Jimmy Golan, in which, uh, you know, Nelson Royal got over really strong, I paid them $1,000 each which came out to be 4,500 in today's money. <laughs> so not a bad night. Well, that's a pretty good payday for, for one match. No doubt about it. It's no wonder wrestlers from all over the world wanted to get into Southeastern. That's for sure. 
All right, that doesn't include what they made the other five nights that week, does it? No, that that's just what they made that night. So, uh, right. you know, and and I calculated as best I could when I started thinking about this, what they did, each one made as an average for that those other five shows of the week. Mm-hmm. And that came out to another $1,000 in their pockets for each of them. So it's bringing the top guys in the territory to about $1,800 for the entire week, which mounts to an $8,000 week in today's money. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about this, Dave. I don't think there's a lot of professional wrestlers in 19, professional athletes in 1977 that mm-hmm. were making that kind of money in any sport. Oh, no doubt. But, and then you said like Tony Charles, Norvell, Bob Orton Jr., Dick Steinborn, they each got 600 bucks that night. Was that more than what they normally would have gotten? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were because of the gate, and this was just a huge night. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, what what I did is uh, I took that $42,000 in the gate and uh, I paid 28% to the the talent, which is a, Probably 5% more than any other promotion was paying people. How so, do you, How do you come up with that percentage? Well, that just- I, I, I think I did it because it was kind of unique. I mean, a lot of guys, some territories only paid 20% of the gate. And, uh, and uh, if I paid 25% of the gate, I knew I would be paying good. But I wanted to do better than just pay guys good. I thought if I go to 28%, just under 30%, I'll be able to have a much better crew to keep much better wrestlers and uh, make my business more successful. And I think that's exactly what happened for me. It really, oh, really helped me to do that. Yeah. Uh, taking that 28% path, guys made a heck of a lot more money. What about Harley? What'd you set him up with? Well, he's the only one that, uh, you know, I personally paid. And everyone was gone. Obviously, we wrestled in the last match. And guys, a lot of them stayed to watch the match and were complimentary about the match. Uh, But then they all kind of disappeared. And uh, when they all disappeared, uh, we were in separate dressing rooms. But we were down in the, and like I said, the bowels of the building. We were down below where everybody else was. And so I went over to pay him personally. And we had known each other for several years. In fact, in 1973 was the first time I ever wrestled Harley, and it was in Miami, Florida. I was the Florida heavyweight champion, and, uh, you know, Harley was going to be the world champion. And then uh, our past crossed a whole lot in St. Louis. I wrestled a lot in St. Louis, 73 and 74. That was Harley's home territory. Uh, he was on top there. I wrestled him several times there. You know, it. we weren't strangers to one another. And uh, obviously, we thanked each other after the match, which was a custom among wrestlers. You know, uh, when they were in a dressing room together and you had a great match with somebody, even if you didn't have a good match with somebody, you went and thanked them for the match. You know, and we sat there, just me and him, which was really nice. And we talked a little bit about having another one. If he comes back, what could we do? And, uh, you know, uh, Ian enjoyed it. And I loved it because it was my dream to see that building like that. And he loved it because he loved the reaction of those fans. Oh, and you got some of the craziest fans here I've ever seen, Ron. Because, <laughs> wow, you got a, you got a hell of a business here. 
So, and then finally we got down to business, basically the payoff. And I'd already asked my accountant, you know, and he always would bring me a piece of paper and a pen and he would bring me the figure of the house and I would figure guys payoffs and he'd go back and he'd get the money and he would pay off after the event. I normally didn't pay wrestlers, but Harley was a different situation. And, uh, and I think I did the same thing when I paid Terry, to be honest with you, uh, the first time. So I told the, uh, after I looked at the house, I told uh, my accountant to go bring me $3,000 in $100 bills. And I had them with me in the dressing room. Mm. So, um, so I asked Harley, you know, I said, hey, well, Har- Harley, it's, it's time to take care of business, man. And, uh, you know, I said, I hold out your hand. <laughs> and I started to lay, they were all $100 bills. I started to lay these $100 bills in his palm, one at a time. Mm. And when I got to 20, he looked up at me for the first time. For the first 20, he just counted with me. Right. And, uh, I got to 20 and he looked up and, uh, and I kept on dropping them. And he started a big smile, started coming to his old hardened face. I'll call wow. it the hardened face, man. When I finished and I dropped that 30th $100 bill, man, he, he, he had a whole different look in his eye than when I'd started. <laughs> it looked like a different heart than the one that was there when I began that process. I mean, what did, what had he expected to be paid? I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, he didn't know either. Was I was talking about it. You know, I mean, an unspoken thing between the two of you or, well, you know, it was pretty standard that you took care of the world champion. And then you, you sent some money to the NWA for the use of the champion. It was kind of, um, your own opinion and your own, uh, right to figure out what you wanted to pay him. And I wanted to take good care of him. And then, you know, he he doesn't know, you know, no wrestler really knew what your house was. Yeah. You know, but he does know that this building is packed full. You know? He knew you <laughs> had it rocking. And do you think he was expecting that past the 20? Uh, no, no, I don't think he was. I think that's why when I counted, he counted with me to that first 20. And then when it went beyond, I kept putting them in his hand. Wow. That's when he's looked up and. That's when a smile started to come to his face. Yeah. What what did he say? Uh, he didn't say anything until I finished putting the 30th bill in his hand. And then he, he, he said, uh, he said, Ron, he goes, uh, I want to thank you. And he says, I want you to do something for me. I want you to call Sam Muchnick first thing tomorrow morning. He said, and I want you to tell him that I said, that I want to work Southeastern wrestling as many times a year as you're willing to use me. Good Lord. Wow. <laughs> There's an endorsement. Holy cow. Yeah. I was like, well, hell yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. I was like, wow. And then the smile that he had on his face came to my face, you know, cause yeah. there's your money, man. There's your champion. And you yeah. want that guy to be happy. So, wow. That was a, it was a big moment for me. It was, I'd never heard anything like that. And I did exactly what he said. I called Sam the very first thing the following morning. And I told him what Harley said. I was getting the champion about once every seven months. Harley's going to be back in two months. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's going to make a big difference for me. So I thanked him. It's the end of the night. We shook hands again and we hugged each other, you know, and, and, and I'd never had a hug with Harley before, but, uh, you know, we, you bond when you wrestle a guy for an hour 
there's a bond there forever. You know, it's a, yeah. it's, it's an unusual event. An hour long match is, uh, it's like marrying somebody almost, you know. <laughs> so, and, and I walked away from the whole deal realizing that I'd made much more than just a payoff to Harley. I'd made a lifelong friend. Holy cow. You, and I, I want to, I want you to help me set this up. You were 26. How, how old was he at the time? It, it, oh, right he was probably, uh, 35, maybe older. No, he feel- was not a young guy. Yeah. Did you feel like he, you were wrestling a legend at the time? I never really thought of that when I was wrestling. I, I never really get, let myself get overwhelmed by who a guy was okay. and what his okay. reputation yeah. was. I just, I wrestled him just like I would anybody else. Did you think he's a big deal in the sport? And I just, Oh, of ass. course, of course. He's the NWA world heavyweight <laughs> yeah. champion. I got, right. You know, I mean, uh, you wear that belt and you are a big thing. You know, oh, no doubt. there's nobody that can go. Well, he's, he's a nobody. <laughs> I mean, Man. you don't get yeah. that belt by not being a big thing, you know? So yeah, it yeah. was, it was really good, man. And, uh, so after so, you drop the bills on him and you do the handshake and you do the hug, what do you, what do you, is it just, does he leave? Do you both leave, walk out together? What do you do? No, no. I mean, you never go anywhere together, man. It's a oh, kayfabe oh, world. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's a kayfabe okay. world. You know, you don't, uh, I left out of one side of that arena and he right. left out of the other side. And, uh, I didn't speak to him. Didn't see him for a long yeah. time, I guess yeah. for a couple of months after that. But, uh, Wow. Yeah, we went our separate ways. Man, that's... So far as anybody knew, that never happened. Yeah, well, okay. So this studcast and the last one are way more than just wrestling history. They obviously tell the story about much more than, than just a sport. They tell a story about hard work, honor, and respect, especially the respect that was built between you two. So I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of these historic shows. That's, that's awesome, bro. That's, that's cool. Well, uh, thanks, Dave. You know, and and uh, and, uh, and I'm almost done with this tremendous event in my life. You know, I want to tell one more brief story about the long-term results of this particular night, and it begins with my father on that night of April 28, 1977. This is a small little story, but he had a big old farm, a ranch. You could call it a farm or ranch on the western side of Tennessee in a small little t- city called Bolivar. And along with the many other things he had going for himself, which he had a lot going on at that time, he was training wrestlers there. Oh, that's right. Yeah. One of the more famous of them that he trained was a guy named Danny Davis, who went on to become one of the nightmares. They worked uh, for me in uh, uh, Continental in 86 and 87, uh, a Mm -hmm. great little worker. So on this morning of this show, he's almost 400 miles away from Knoxville. He gets all of his entire crew up his entire school of students and he puts them on a bus and they bust themselves to knoxville and i don't think he had any idea of seeing what they're going to see that night you know he didn't he had no idea what we were doing and you know he just wanted to bring them over because harley's on the card and he wants to be there and see it and he'd visited many many times visited me on the scene matches many times but, you know, he'd never seen anything like this. He didn't realize what was going on over there at this point. And if anyone could, he grasped the struggle I was having and trying to build that southeastern territory because he'd gone the same, through the same experiences that I was going through. In fact, he started his first wrestling company, Dave, at 27 years old. So 
He was right. only a year older than I was when I started my company. And his story began in the early 1950s. And his first territory was Gulf Coast, right down there, man, where you live, man. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he went from Gulf Coast uh, to Memphis in the late 1950s, to Arizona in the 60s, and to Atlanta in the late 1960s. And, and had tremendous, tremendous success everywhere he went. You know, so in early 1976, he thought I wasn't going to make it. And he invited me to come to Tampa and meet with him and Eddie Graham. And I flew down there and I thought they were going to, you know, go, hey, Ron, it's great to see you. You're doing a good job, whatever. And they they said just the opposite. They said, uh, Ron, we, we don't think you're going to make it. You, we think you're going to fail and we, we want to buy you out. Holy cow. They were talking about Southeastern Knoxville? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is early 1976 now. I mean, we right. weren't we weren't at the point where we are here a year, yeah, more yeah. Than a year later. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that's the whole deal. They brought me there to to tell me, you know, we think you're going to fail, and we 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 want to help you out. We want to buy you out, right? So mm-hmm. once they told me that, I got on the plane. They they sent me the ticket. I flew down, and uh, when they said that, I said, guys. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make this a great little territory. And I went over and I got the phone and dad said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm calling Delta Airlines. I'm flying home right now. I'm going home. Right. I was, I was a little PO'd at him. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> I got on the next flight and uh, picked me up in a taxi. I wouldn't even let him take me to the airport. Wow. I was insulted that they had so little confidence in me. You know, and when I look back upon it, uh, I think they might have intentionally done that to light a fire in me, man. You know, they might have done it to say this kid, all he needs is just a just a little oomph here to make him want to get it a little more and he'll get it done. You know, maybe that was the deal. But anyway, on this night in April of 1977, it dramatically changed uh, my father's opinion. This event, I think he saw this crowd. I think he saw, you know, he liked everyone, you know, in wrestling. He was astounded by what was happening there. (laughs) Mm. He saw the crowd and it was like it blew him away, you know, like, wow, this is unbelievable. I never saw it, expected this, right? So after that, we met late that night in his hotel room. And uh, although I I don't think he wanted to admit it entirely, he was obviously blown away by everything he had seen that night. He was blown away by the crowd. He was blown away by the talent. He was blown away by the how good the matches were, by how good the finishes were, the crew, the camaraderie of the crew. And he told me all of it that night. He said, wow. every one of those, I, it, this blew me away. And that, your crew was unbelievable. And they're all happy. And you don't see that. And I mean, so we had a tremendous father-son conversation. And it was that night that I kind of began, Dave, to see what my future was in the sport. Hmm. And our discussion about all that that he saw that night started me thinking, you know. And I was at a point here where I had really, that was my first huge success feeling about Southeastern. And I felt like if I can do it here, I can do it anywhere I want to go. Uh, It doesn't have to just be here. And then I got to thinking, that, you know, all the territories that there were around the country in 1977, they were on the verge of collapse. I mean, they weren't all doing good like I was. They were falling apart. The Sheik in Ohio and Michigan was falling apart. The Fields Brothers down there on the Gulf Coast couldn't draw flies. I mean, 
And there were other territories across the country. So my dad says to me, he goes, Ron, you need to duplicate what you're doing. He goes, Ohio is for sale. He goes, why don't me and you buy Ohio from the sheep? I began for the next six months to think about a whole lot about expansion, if not Ohio, somewhere else. Ohio became the first interest, but it's going to follow later on uh, by a territory that's in the opposite direction from Knoxville, rather north into Ohio. I'm going to really get a hankering to get the territory that's south and on the beach in Pensacola. So this night, it's going to lead me to both success and eventually, Dave, to disaster. Whoa. Okay. All right. So I I never expected this huge night to have such far-reaching uh, effects on your future. It, it kind of sounds like something that could take us in an entirely different direction and even for the last several studcasts by itself. So this night has become even more fascinating because of all that. Or is it finally time for the surprise you said was going to be in this studcast? I am not waiting any longer to hear it. Let's have it. <laughs> all right, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it's time. We're going to, we're going to close her out here with the, with the surprise. Okay. And now you mentioned that one match I, I, I forgot to mention. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that match was with Robert Fuller, my brother against the Southeastern champion, the Mongolian stomper managed uh -huh. by Don Carson. Okay? Yeah. In this match is going to probably be the biggest pop of the entire night. Really? In this match, middle of the card, no one expected it. Remember in the last studcast, Robert made an interview where he absolutely guaranteed that he was going to beat the stomper in this big event. And, you know, there's no way anybody could guarantee they were going to beat the stomper. I mean, you know, he was one of the baddest dudes there was, right? So, but Rob really made a point of, of, of really pressing the fact that I'm going to leave as the champion, right? Okay. So, uh, so here's what happened. So the stomper, as usual, dominated Rob in the match. He dominated most everybody he wrestled. Uh, Don Carson was out there on the floor, and he was having a moment of glory, man, watching his Mongolian machine take my brother apart, man. He's like, wow, this is perfect. I love it. So uh, Rob starts to come back in this match, and uh, just immediately the stomper cuts him off, and Rob grabs a headlock, desperation headlock, to keep the stomper from keeping continuing to beat on him. Uh, maybe I can hold him down by getting a headlock. And Stomper fired him into the rope, and then he headed in after Rob, man. And uh, Rob came off the ropes like a rocket. Uh, I watched this because, you know, I know what's going to happen here. And uh, when Rob came off like a rocket, they collided head first. And uh, Rob went shot backwards out through the ropes and onto the concrete. And Stomper went backwards into the referee, who was happened to be standing behind where he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, both uh, the stomper and the referee went down and Rob went out of the ring onto the floor. The only man standing in this whole contest at this point is Don Carson out there on the Coliseum floor. The building went silent, like, wow, what's going to happen here? You know, this is crazy. So Rob started to crawl back into the ring first. Stomper and the referee are still down. And the Carson, boy, he sees his spot. He's got no referee. He's got nobody to disqualify him or whatever. And he shoots up in the ring and he loads his glove. So Rob crawls through the ropes, man, just trying to struggling just to get back in the ring. 
And uh, Carson grabs him up and just puts, hits him with the loaded glove, right? Now the crowd exploded, man. Wow, they're hot. Then he drug Rob over to where the stomper was, and he put the stomper on top of him. The referee's still down. Carson uh, unloads his glove, and, uh, and he leaves the ring. The crowd is roaring at this point, man. They're furious now. Carson has done, he's done beat Rob, you know, and, uh, and the way that he normally beat people for, for the stomper when he had to. And then, wow, something happened that it's going to change everything for Southeastern. So out of nowhere came this unknown wrestler wearing a white mask. Oh. You know? And as soon as the crowd saw him, they went dead silent again. Uh, you know, they, they didn't know who is this guy? What is this all about, right? And the mass wrestler, he came up behind Carson. And Carson's looking in the ring at what's going on, and he taps him on the shoulder. And Carson kind of shrugged him off with his shoulder, you know, like, hey, whoever you are, get the hell away. I'm watching what's going on. My stomach's about to win here. Right. So, you know, so <laughs> then the mass guy taps him on the shoulder again. And this time, Carson bites, man. And when he turns around, the mask guy hits him with a big right hand, man, right in the, right in the mush, man. And, uh, boy, the crowd reacted, man. They popped, you know, there was a big cheer. They don't know who this guy is. You know, they've never seen this guy, you know, but uh, they don't like Carson, that's for sure. So they're <laughs> glad to see anybody hit Don, right? Yeah. So there was a, you know, they still weren't certain about what was going on at all. So then the mask man picked up Carson, and he ran him down the apron of the ring uh, right into the steel post. Face first. Boy, the crowd popped even louder this time, man. And the stomper still laying there. Uh, after Carson hit Rob, he drug Rob over there and he put the stomper on top of him. Then he left the ring. Yeah. So now, you know, his stomper's going to win, but now stomper's still laying on top of Rob. So the mask guy, he, he posts Carson and then he slowly climbs up to the top rope. And the crowd began every step he took up. He was just real slow and methodical <laughs> about it. Okay. The crowd began to come alive. You know? <laughs> and then he got to that top rope and he slowly turned his head. He got up there and stood and he turned his head in all directions like he wanted to make contact with that crowd, you know. And uh, they started growing even louder. And when he raised his hands above his head, man, the same way as that guy that was the big baby face a few weeks earlier that had mm -hmm. to leave, they got it. It hit them, man. All of a sudden, they realized who the hell that is. It you know? was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, building rose to its feet. I mean, you couldn't hear yourself think, man. And, boy, he flew like an eagle, man, landed with that knee in the back of the stomper's neck. That roof came off the building. <laughs> and he rolled over Rob on top of the stomper, and he drugged the referee over to where they were. And he left the ring, and he left the building. He went out the back curtain, and he never came back. And the crowd was, at this <laughs> point, going absolutely crazy. And the referee rolled over there, and he counted out to three. And the celebration started. And it really didn't end until they carried both Carson and Stomper back to the dressing room. Stomper didn't get up. Carson didn't get up. It was positively the highlight of the night. Oh, no doubt. Can I say it? Can I say it? Who it was? Yeah, you can say it, man. Ronnie that's Garvin's right. back. Ronnie Garvin's yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it, man. Wow. Was that the final? Was that the final match for the night? No, that was oh, the middle of the card. 
that wow. final. Me and Harley were the final. Yeah, it's hard to follow that. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to follow that, but uh, that, like I said, man, the middle of the card was yeah. the match of the, the pop of the night. Was that deal right there? Oh no, I mean that's to me. You had two. You had probably had more than two main events that night, but I mean that that's that's pretty awesome. So. <laughs> well, we got through recording the studcast last week. Lou, our producer, and I tried to guess who or what was going to be the surprise that you promised on the show. So, anyway, uh, it, it took me a few minutes, but uh, eventually it came to me, Rob. <laughs> it's kind of like that crowd, man. It took them a few minutes to, yeah. to figure out yeah. what the hell, who it was, you know. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, just like I said, you know, we gave people something that they really didn't expect. And, uh, all right. I got to ask, though, all right, in the coming weeks, are we going to find out why Ronnie had to leave and, and then he, he comes back? Because he, he said upon departure, I may not be back. Yeah. Well, we do know here at this point that he lost a loser leave town, a right. southeastern right. match for a loser leave town. And he, he can't come back as Ronnie Garvin. And uh, he, he isn't going to come back as Ronnie Garvin either. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So, so, so what happens next week concerning Ron, Ronnie Garvin? Well, Dave, kind of as usual, man, you're going to have to wait till next week to find the answer to that one. Yeah, you know? I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. All right. You got us again, didn't you, Stud? I love this. Absolutely a ton of fun. Another amazing job on this Studcast. All right, folks, if, if you're on Facebook, you can like and follow Ron on either or both his two available Facebook pages. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud or author Ron Fuller Welch and become friends with a legend on Twitter or Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on both. And don't forget that fantastic Southeastern continental five pack of DVDs with 67 matches, more than 12 hours of history. It's available at tnstud.com. See many of the great stars that came from these territories from Hulk Hogan to Arn Anderson and too many to name. They're here in this great offer at tnstud.com. Click on stud store for your historic five pack of DVDs. Only $39.99. That includes shipping. Part two of Super Studcast number 40 is now out. More than three hours with 12 great stars all celebrating the upcoming 200th Studcast. This is number 197. Number 200 is getting close. The Honky Tonk Man, Jim Cornette, Jerry Briscoe, Kevin Sullivan, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Dutch Mantell, Tommy Rich, Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs, the Lord Humongous, and the great Brian Last. Hearing these conversations is something really special, like all Super Studcast are. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast gets you more than three hours of history for $2.99. That is the best deal in wrestling. And Brutus, still out there roaming the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Find out why then compared to Jaws. It has almost 50 five-star global reviews. It's the best story America's storyteller Ron Fuller has ever written. Get it today on Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or get the special autograph copy at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store and get ready for terror. Okay, Ron, so where are we riding next week? Well, 
we're going back to another today's training, and we're going to find out if this mask guy that shows up in the stud cast is really Ronnie Garvin. And if so, uh, how the heck is he going to return to wrestling in Southeastern after losing the Loser Leave Town match? Uh, we're going to talk about the great card of May the 6th, 1977. Uh, we'll talk about another great TV and, uh, and much more. Plus, we're going to have a learning tree question again next week. And uh, Studcast are really on fire, Dave, and uh, they're only going to get hotter, hotter and hotter, man. Uh, we got some good stuff coming up that uh, I think are going to freak fans out. So I want to thank everybody, man, uh, for listening today, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please tell your friends and neighbors about us and uh, take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. God bless you too, Stud. Hey, this is David Summers also thanking you for being here and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction. For another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>